The following audio is from Grace Fellowship of Westerville. More information about the church is available at www.gracefcwesterville.org. I want to thank all the people of, what church is this? <laughs> Grace Fellowship Church. And especially Pastor Craig for allowing this truck driver's son to uh, share the Word of God with you. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Ed Dezego. My, my brains, my compass, my uh, steadiness is sitting right here. Her name is Mary. Mary, stand up. More often than not in my ministry, after people meet me close up, they say, Mary, we'll pray for you. <laughs> Craig, that's the truth. <laughs> May I call you Craig, or should I say Pastor Craig? Okay, Charles. <laughs> it's been a pleasure to be here. Uh, passion of my heart has been walking with the Lord. I never thought I would ever speak in front of people. The night I got saved, I was at a rock festival. I was just too restless to listen to music. So I walked into this little pop pavilion kind of thing. The guy said, you have five minutes? And I said, sure, man. He shared the gospel with me. I'd never heard the gospel. He said I had to be born again. I had no tradition to look back on. I had no hooks to hang that on. I was just like, kind of like Nicodemus. I said, what do you mean born again? And he goes, well, to know God, you have to be born of the Spirit. I said, well, let's get born again. Had no idea what I was getting into. But I do have an idea who I met. I didn't have a religious tradition, so there was nothing to push back on. But what I discovered is that Christianity is not a religious tradition. It's Jesus Christ. I met a person. A person met me. A person apprehended me. This person named Jesus, who I really just thought was a cuss word. Okay, all right. A byword. This person came inside me, and everything became different. I remember waking up the next morning, still at the rock festival, and wondering why the sky was so blue and why the mud was so brown. I was going to say the grass was so green, but let's be realistic. It was a rock festival site, and there was no grass. Oh, what? wait a minute. Yes, there was, but not that kind. Sorry, that was a slip. No, yeah. And off I was on this adventure called the Christian life. And what fascinated me about the Christian life is I had no, no idea what it was. And so everybody that I started bumping into, that was in November of 1969, everybody I started bumping into was sort of placed there by God, and they didn't have a religious tradition either, but they knew Jesus. 
And so I never thought that Christianity was about this certain moral code or this certain ecclesiastical affiliation or this certain uh, confession. All I knew about Christianity was Christianity is a relationship with a living Savior, and his name is Jesus. And you can get to know him just like a real person. And it wasn't about going to the right church, although going to church can be helpful. It can be devastating, too. I've hung around them now a long time, and lots of people's lives have been ruined by going to church. Maybe yours has. Christianity is Jesus Christ. And as I began to probe into and and look into what it means to walk with the Lord, it became one passion that Christ gave me, and that was to know him. Despite what anyone else was doing or saying or whatever kind of music was playing, none of that was really relevant. It was all about Jesus Christ. Like Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, I count all things as loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And I wanted that, and I would look at those verses, and I want that to be my passion. And if anybody says anything about me years from now, and I thought that meant uh, when I was 25, because I was only 18. Years from now, when I'm old, like 25, and if anybody says anything about me, I want them to say, there's a man who knows Jesus Christ. That's all I wanted. I didn't know if I was supposed to study the Bible. I didn't know I was supposed to go to the, to the Southern Baptist Church down the street. I didn't know I was supposed to go to Bible college. I didn't know I was going to ever go to seminary. I didn't know what a seminary was. I thought that's where they put crazy people. And some people call it cemetery because they go and die there. They learn so much they don't know him anymore. But, you know... I didn't know all of that, and if you had told me all of that, I probably would have ran away. I'd have probably gone to Woodstock. Oh, well, that was over already. It was about Jesus Christ. And I remember watching a film, a little one of those black and white films that they show at youth group back in 1970, you know, the kind of go... And then it stops three times, and they go, wait, i got to fix the thing. And it, and it goes, it was about George Mueller. George Mueller was this guy back in the 1800s who came out of paganism, trusted Christ, knew him as a personal Savior, and got a burden for orphans. And he prayed to God that he would have, be able to take care of thousands of orphans. And he, it was about his life of just trusting God. And I went, that's how it's done. And then about a year later, I got called into the ministry like a clap of thunder. I was sitting at this tiny little Baptist church in Hollywood, Florida, just off of Young's Circle there on US-1. And David Holt was the pastor, and he was preaching a message. And at the end of the message, he gave this silly little illustration about an offering and, and how this person said, put the offering plate on the ground. And he stood into the offering plate, and he says, I don't have any money, but I'm giving me. And I went, I've got to go to full-time Christian work. Three months later, I was in Bible college. I didn't know what college was. I was a high school D-minus student. I didn't even go to graduation of high school. They put me on probation, 
And it was all about, what? Knowing Christ. I didn't know what a credit hour was. Neither did my dad. Neither did my mother. It was that kind of a family. He drove a truck. My mom stayed at home and cooked meals, and my brother beat me up. Here I was in college. Here I was a Christian, the only one in the family claiming the name of Christ. Everybody's watching me. It was about knowing Jesus, and I just kept studying the Bible. I studied the Bible so much that I finally knew so much about so little that I didn't know anything at all. But, you know, it's Jesus Christ. Forty, what year is this? Forty-six years later, nothing's changed. Christianity is Jesus Christ. And you look back in church history, and you understand that the, our church fathers and, and the reformers, they all wanted a spiritual life. And there were different forms of spirituality. In the first few centuries, spirituality was defined by the moral list you kept. Or by whether or not Rome apprehended you and burned you or fed you to the lions, martyrdom. Moral list, martyrdom. And then once Christianity became legal, in order to be spiritual, people headed off into the desert to be desert hermits or created communes called monasteries. And whether you were a monastic or whether you were a martyr or whether you kept a certain moral list, that seemed to determine whether you were spiritual or not. But I've discovered Jesus isn't necessarily in anybody else's moral list. He's not necessarily in a monastery and there are lots of martyrs every day who blow themselves up for false gods and they don't know Jesus. Then the church became institutionalized and they created this thing called the sacrament. And if you take enough sacraments, enough times every day during the week, God's grace would be infused on you and somehow you would be spiritually transformed and people substituted Jesus Christ with stuff that they did inside of a big building. And that wasn't spirituality. And then... People understood that there's no, there's no reality to taking biscuits and wine and, and water sprinkled on your head. And they realized, that Jesus isn't in these things. And so they started going into deep meditation and we got the mystics. And the mystics discovered that they were so existential that Jesus wasn't there anymore either. And so by the time the 1500s rolled around, everybody needed a reformation. But nobody was talking about Jesus, the person, a personal relationship with Christ. And so on and on we go, and we get to the 20th century and the 21st century, and we say, so what is spirituality? Is it the moral list I keep? Because I keep a moral list that is convenient for the church that I go to so that people won't think I'm not a good Christian. Right? Is it... The separation I keep, I don't touch anything that's unclean. I've got my own little monastery and my own little monastic community. They're called my friends. And we all agree with the same thing, and we all don't go to the same places. But boy, it's getting tired. I'm getting tired. It's getting old. I want some reality. I want some spiritual reality to this life. How do I have some spiritual reality in the, in, the, in the chaos of all this religious stuff? Sometimes I think, man, the last place I want to take a person to grow in Christ is the church. Look at all this stuff. 
when I got saved, I didn't know I would be behind this. What kind of thing is this? See-through. Whoa. <laughs> and uh, this stuff and all, you know, but it's cool. But it's not spirituality. None of this is a substitute for Jesus Christ. I remember the lesson that hit me square in the head the first time I left the country. I went to teach in Nigeria at a seminary. And in Nigeria at the time, the average wage was about $120 a year. And I was making $300 a week. And they asked me, what do you do with all that money? <laughs> I said, whoa. Like, I'm on the poverty level at, at our house. And then I watched their lives as I taught them, and they had something that so many of us miss. They had the only the things on their head that they could bundle on their head, but every one of them had a personal relationship with Jesus Christ that transcended material things, and everybody I taught, a whole room full of people who walked, some of them walked four or five hours to get there just to hear the Bible, Every one of them had an expectation of a coming kingdom and a coming Lord that would change everything radically and immediately forever. And they were excited. And I said, see, that's what Christianity is. And so over the years, as I've studied spiritual life, and I've had a passion to be spiritual, whatever that means, of course, I've put together a lot of notes and I've taught a lot of... Uh, seminary classes and I've taught a lot of churches and I have this thing called to live as Christ because that's a really neat verse and it encapsulates what I believe about the spiritual life. I've tried to ask myself, so what does it look like to be spiritual? We've talked about it all weekend, new covenant spirituality, that Jesus came, God the Son became a man, he lived a sinless life. He died on a cross in my place. He rose from the dead to give me life. He sits at the right hand of the Father, mediating the promises of the new covenant. And all of this is designed by God and his grace to infuse divine life into those who will say yes to Jesus. All that's in place. God has done everything necessary in order for all of us to live eternally and to live with abundance spiritually. He's done everything necessary, everything we could need. We need to go nowhere else but to Jesus Christ himself. He is the fountain of life. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the life, and he ministers life by giving us the dwelling Holy Spirit, who is the spirit of life, and we're inundated with divine life and grace. And you say, so what does it look like when you're actually on? It's not about preaching a great sermon. I've heard great orators who don't know the Lord. Please don't equate whether you like this message or not with my spirituality. I used to entertain before I became a Christian. I played in coffee houses. We know how to do shtick. It's not, it's not the reality of spiritual life. Spiritual life is a relationship with, and it's personal. And when I get asked, so Pastor Ed, what does it look like? What, what criteria do you look for when you're trying to discover whether or not somebody's walking with the Lord, whether or not they're following the leading of the Spirit? What does a Spirit-filled Christian look like? 
We've talked all weekend about everything God has done for us. So what does it look like? What must I do? Well, we'll get to that. And I'd like to describe to you in short terms this morning what I believe in through the course of my pursuit of God and godliness, which is still has millennia to go. I'm so glad there's eternity because it's going to take me all eternity to get where I really want to be. Really? You think you stop learning when you get to heaven? You're just starting to learn the right way with a clear head. <laughs> I, I can't wait to... Anyway, that's another sermon. Um, so what does it look like? What does the spiritual life look like in, in my assessment? Because that's all I can give you. I can't give you Pastor Craig's assessment. But in my assessment, is it a person who reads their Bible regularly? That's not a bad thing to do. But I know scholars in the Bible who don't know Jesus. It's easy to study the Bible. It's even easy to understand the Bible without a relationship with the living God. Some of the best Old Testament scholars don't even believe there is a God, but they know their stuff. Is it somebody who reads your Bible? Not necessarily. Is it somebody who prays? Well, let's ask the people who pray five times a day facing a certain direction. If prayer is spirituality. See, we get caught up in the performance, and so we still have to ask, so what does it look like? Well, if the Holy Spirit's leading us, if the new covenant has promised that God would give us his spirit indwelling us and he would write his law upon our hearts and the Holy Spirit is in us to enable us, he regenerates us. Remember yesterday's lecture? He, he regenerates us. He indwells us. He leads us. He enables us. And he transforms us. That's his job. Third person of the Trinity. His job. Create recreate the life of Christ in every believer willing to follow him through to, to complete God's will for their life. So what's he going to lead me to do? Is he going to lead me to read the Bible? Well, you be the judge. What I might say could be surprising. If the law of Christ that is written on my heart is a law that says, love one another as I have loved you. If that's the law that's inscribed upon my heart, then and if it's the Spirit's job to recreate the likeness of Jesus Christ in my life, he's going to lead me to do what? Keep the law. Keep the law. Whose law? Not Moses. That's for outside things. The law of Christ was for inside things. He's going to lead me to keep the law. And if I understand the simple words, love one another as I have loved you. And if I understand the two great commandments of the Old Testament, which was exactly the same thing, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. If I understand those three commandments all saying the same thing, what I discover is that the spirit-led Christian is a person who's bound in relationships. The first relationship that they're bound to is a relationship with God. The Spirit of God leads us back to God. He leads us in a love connection with God. He leads us to spend time with God because all relationships require time. I don't care 
how close you think you are. You have to spend time with the people you're related to. And all relationships require truth. And in that relationship with time, you're telling the truth. You're honest. You're, you're a person who's open and transparent. And you're learning how to be open and transparent. And eventually in that relationship, there's trust. Every relationship in this room requires time, truth, and trust. And the Holy Spirit will lead the Christian to spend time with God. And I don't mean a quiet time where you open up the daily bread and you have your Bible next to it. That's good. But a time with God where your mind is consciously aware of his presence and you're in conversation with him because he's right there with you. The spirit-led Christian is led back to God in a growing love relationship. And when I meet a person who knows Christ and who talks about Christ, whose words about Christ spill out of their mouth and whose thoughts are about Jesus Christ, I'm going, there's a person who is inundated with the presence of the Holy Spirit. Remember Ephesians chapter 5, 18, it says, Be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to God. The Spirit of the filling of the Spirit of God leads to a love relationship with God and a consciousness of a presence of God. And when I run into people who have a conscious presence of the living God in their life, I say that's the work of the Spirit. And, of course, if you time, spend time with God, then you get to know his heart. And unlike what I wanted, I wanted to know all about God all by myself because I was afraid of people. But the Spirit of God also leads us to relationships with one another. It is really hard to love one another as Christ loved us if you're all alone. Right? I mean, how are you going to do that? Email. Text. No. 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 Jesus was talking about the way I laid my life down for you is the way you're to lay your life down for one another. And so I discovered that the spirit-led Christian, the spirit-filled Christian, a mark of spirituality is a person who has a conscious love relationship with the living presence of the living God and communicates that presence and that kindness and that redemptive Love receptivity with those that they come in contact with. And it doesn't matter if they're friend or foe. Because Jesus didn't come to condemn the world. He came to reclaim and save the world. And he has us on the same mission. And the Spirit of God, fulfilling the law of Christ, which has been written on our heart, will lead us to do the same thing with the people we run into. And so rather than hold grudges, we get rid of them. And rather than be irreconcilable, we reconcile. And rather than be angry, we get at peace. And rather than fret and worry about what they're thinking about us, we just jump in with both feet and we help them be the best versions of themselves because that's what God loved doing to me. Right? And when I run into a person who's in love with God consciously and in love with people around them in a growing conscious way and in an expressive way i say there's a person who can't get out of the way of the holy spirit it's a love relationship it's a love relationship and as much as pastor ed would have liked to have done this all by himself alone in a room with his guitar and his drawings god said if you want the fullness of me you got to rub shoulders with me out in the world. you got to give me a hug once in a while and shake 
my hand a few times and mingle. And if you'll do it a little bit, I'll teach you how to do it a lot. And if you do it a lot, I'll teach you how to like it. <laughs> so he made me a pastor. What a joke. <laughs> he picked the most unlikely person to ever care about anything. <laughs> Honestly. Ah. <laughs> oh. You know, teachers don't have to like you. They just teach. That wasn't God's will. That's not what the Spirit's all about. You don't, teachers aren't necessarily spirit-filled people. They just know their stuff. The mark of the Spirit is a love relationship with God connected to people. Right? Remember what John said, First John? If you say you love God and you don't love each other, you're a liar. <laughs> Wow, you mean you come with the package? <laughs> no, I'm over that, but I can joke about it now. Well, it's a love relationship, but you know what? It's, it's a love relationship that is grounded in love. I've met so many Christians who are so insecure about how God loves them. Don't you understand that when Jesus died on the cross, God demonstrated his love toward you, that even while you are yet sinners and rejecting him, God, Christ, died for you? He demonstrated his love. It's a historical fact. There isn't anything you can do or can't do that will eradicate the historical fact that God already loves you. Like it or not, he loves you. Accept it or not, he loves you. You can't make a go away. You can't lessen it. Like I told a group years ago that apparently affected my wife in a major way. I said, there isn't anything you can do that can make God love you less. It says in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 15 and 16, that the Holy Spirit renews our inner man, having been rooted and grounded in love so that Christ can make his home at, in our hearts. Rooted and grounded in love. It says in Romans chapter 5 that the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. It's not only a relationship of love toward God and love towards one another, but it's a relationship with the security and the confidence that there isn't anything I can botch up today, there isn't anything I can neglect today that will make God stop loving me. It's a done deal. He has set his seal on me. He's not withdrawing. He's not taken by surprise by my stupidity, which is on a daily basis. He looks and he goes, my son. And even if I'm a lousy son who doesn't cut his spiritual hedges that day right on time and who neglects somebody's email And you know who you are. God says, you're my kid. I love you. The spirit of God, the spirit-led Christian is a person who's confident. Not arrogant, but confident in his relationship with God because of the love of God through Jesus Christ.
person who's still scared, a person who still think they're being dangled over the fiery flames of hell, wait, God's waiting for them to really goof it up so he can toss them in and get his last laugh. The person who's walking, it is not a person led by the Spirit. The Spirit of God knows the love of God, and he sheds it abroad in our hearts, and the Spirit Nurtured Christian is a confident Christian, not an arrogant Christian, but a confident Christian so that we can come boldly to the throne of grace to find mercy and grace to help in time of need. And I watch Christians who are still scared that God, how can God love me? You don't know what I've done, Pastor. I don't care what you've done. You want to match sins? Let's go for it. I'll take you back to Woodstock, (laughs) if those are what sins are. Have you ever read Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, that the certificate of debt that was against us has been nailed to the Have you ever read Romans chapter 8, verse 1, where it says, Therefore, there is No condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Believe God. He said it. He meant it. It's really the truth. Get over yourself. Get over your pity. Let the Spirit of God shed Christ's love abroad in your heart. Quit working for your salvation, would you? Repent of your good works and lean on Jesus. So many good works just done out of penance because of things they've done wrong. Forget the penance. God doesn't need us. He doesn't require us. He wants us. Right? As silly as that sounds, he wants us. So, The spirit-filled life, it's a life with a consciousness in a relationship with God and an active, expressive relationship of love toward one another that is rooted and grounded in the confidence of God's love for us in the cross. But it isn't a work of the flesh. You see, Paul said in Romans chapter 7, verse 14, that I'm fleshly sold into the bondage of sin. And then he goes on to say, and the things that I want to do, I can't do. And the things that I don't want to do, I end up doing all the time. And, you know, with my mind, I serve the law of God. But with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. And I feel like I'm being torn in half by two horses running in opposite directions. And who shall deliver me from the body of this death? And then he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. What I've discovered is that while it's a relationship with God and it's a relationship with you in the confidence of the the love of Calvary, that it's a life that's enabled by grace. It isn't something that I muster and that I manufacture. It's a life that God has Settled with himself because he's a God of all grace. And there's two types of grace that I think about in the, in the New Testament. There's foundational grace that you have in Ephesians chapters 1 and 2. Where it says that before the foundation of the world he chose you. And he predestined you to be an heir, adoption. And that he redeemed you where you have no more sins and that he indwelt you and that in chapter 2 he regenerated you that which was dead he gave 
he brought to life. And that he's raised you up and seated you in heavenly places. He glorified you. All of that God did. It's his workmanship. You are his workmanship. You had nothing to do with any of those things that I just said. And it's all by grace. By grace you have been saved. And there isn't anything you can do to earn it. There isn't anything you can do to get rid of it. It's been done for you. Isn't that marvelous? And that's the ground I stand on. He chose me. I didn't choose him. He adopted me. I didn't adopt him. He redeemed me. I didn't pay him back. He indwelt me. I didn't know that was happening. He made me alive. I didn't even know I was dead. He seated me in heavenly places, and it's a great view. That's all foundational grace. Grace, unmerited favor, but God's grace provided all that and more. His righteousness, his guarantees. We could go on and on. That's another Bible conference. But then there's enabling grace. Not only has his grace grounded me, but his grace has enabled me. What does it say in Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 11? It says, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us, teaching us. God's grace teaches me to deny ungodliness and worldly lust and to live righteously, soberly in this present evil age. God's grace operative in a person, enabling a person, is actually God's tool, his own do provided tool that teaches me that's wrong that's good and it's going on all the time it's able to be there for it's it's unmerited i don't have to say oh what do i need to do to get your grace he said you got it already use it would ya the engine's running i built the engine it's running would you step on the gas Not only does God's grace teach, but God's grace enables. Paul said to the Lord in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he says, I got a thorn in the flesh. It's it's an angel of Satan. I don't want to get into what that was. You won't like me after I say, but it's an angel of Satan. Would you get rid of it, Lord? And he sought the Lord three times, and the Lord's final answer was, no, my grace is sufficient for you. It's an enabling grace. It's not only a teaching grace, but it enables me. It's God's riches altering Christian experience. By the way, that spells G-R-A-C-E. God's riches altering Christian experience. And he says, my grace is sufficient for you. And then Paul says, therefore, I would rather be weak for where I am weak. His strength is perfected. And the power of Christ rests on me. So it's an enabling grace, but not only is God's grace instructive and enabling, God's grace is transformative. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10, Paul says, I am what I am by the grace of God. And the things that I do, but not I, but the grace of God that is working in me. Paul's life as a Pharisee was transformed into Paul's life as an apostle to the Gentiles. And the transformation, the makeover, was all done by God's grace. No wonder why he said to the Romans, you're not under law, but under grace. Therefore, sin will not reign in your mortal bodies. Grace doesn't put up with it. 
It teaches you to deny that ungodliness. It teaches you to pursue righteousness. God's grace enables you in that pursuit, and God's grace transforms us while we pursue it. So it's not just a a life where we muster love for God. Oh, I love you, God. I'm tired of doing that, but I love you anyway. It's a life that's enabled by and grounded on God's grace. It's a gift, and it's unmerited. When I see people who are strong in grace, like Paul said to Timothy, be strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus. And when I see people who are growing in grace, like Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 3, grow in the grace. When I see people who are strong in grace and growing in grace and being taught by grace and being enabled by grace and depending upon grace rather than their own intuition and ingenuity, when I see people who are grace people, I say there's a person in Powered by the Spirit of God. There are people in love with God. There are people who are starting to love and know how, are learning to love one another. There are people who are confident with God's love at Calvary for their lives. They're not scared anymore about that judgment that's waiting the world. And their life has a supernatural air about it. There's a grace life going on, and it doesn't come from them. It comes from somewhere else. I go, there's a person led by the Spirit. Well, what do you have to do? You still haven't said, what do I have to do? Well, here comes the punch. You say I have till 1 o'clock? <laughs> uh, give it to me. I'll take it. <laughs> There's a big Bible here. No, no. When do I quit, sir? No, please, you don't say that. I have been preaching for 40 years. I'm not done yet. Okay? All right. That's scary. We're almost done, right? You say, so, but Pastor Ed, You haven't told me what I have to do to make all this. All this stuff you've been talking about is really cool, but how does it click? How do I connect to it? What do I have to do? Well, we talked about faith yesterday. I don't want to go down that route this morning. I'm going to end today where I ended the the second session yesterday. Because there is one ability God wants from all of us. One ability. You have to have this ability or you can't walk with the Lord. Yeah, you heard the message. Down in the front row. Be quiet down here. <laughs> if you didn't hear it. You, the only ability God wants from me is availability. Your pastor calls it surrender. As far as I know, we're saying the same thing. What would my life have been like if I had walked into that tent and the man who said, you have five minutes, say, yeah, but I'm not available right now. Catch me tomorrow. I've never thought about that till just now. What would your life be like if The Spirit speaks to you today, whatever means, this sermon, you're reading your Bible. By the way, the Word of God is the living Word of the Spirit. 
It says so in the book of Hebrews. It says, if the, the Spirit says, present tense, and then it quotes an Old Testament passage. So even though it's written in history, it's a living document because the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper and two-edged sword, and it's enlivened by the Spirit. So when you hear the Spirit's voice, the, the author of Hebrews in chapter 3 says, if you hear the Spirit's voice, do not harden your heart as those who were in the rebellion, who came out of Egypt and wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. See, the Spirit's still talking. He talks in a lot of ways. He talks through our friends who know the Lord. He talks through our circumstances. Certain places you're just never going to go. I'm never going to be an airline pilot. So the Spirit of God's not talking. You know, you say, I want to be an airline pilot. You're 60,000 years old. Get over it. You're not flying at any level anymore. <laughs> it's an inside joke, isn't it? Yes. But the Spirit of God will speak to us in our context, in our life through the people around us, through the circumstances we're involved with, by the word of God, which he wrote and still breathes through. Right? And today, today, and I'm going to take it a little out of context and say, right here, right now, today, if you hear his voice, and some of you know exactly what that means, God's been tapping you on the shoulder. He's been leaving you emails. He's had messages on your answering machine. And you're going, oh, it's God again. Ah, silly metaphor. Very true. Because I do that. God taps me on the shoulder as a pastor with a real live message on my answering machine or in my email box. And I go, I'm not available right now. I'll get that one tomorrow, and I put it in this little file. I drag it over here. And guess when I go back to that file? Usually never. Because there are new emails that come. And you forget that old one's even in the box. And then about two months later, you open the box, and you go, oh, criminy. Usually you say a more colorful metaphor than that. But you understand what I mean. Today, if you hear his voice, do you have the ability? Do you have a veil ability? Remember the Israelites in the wilderness. They wandered for 40 years. Those who say no stand in the presence of the Lord when they're assessed for their works. And like it says in 1 John chapter 2, I think around verse 27, they shrink back in shame. They're saved. Like Paul said, they're saved as by fire, but they shrink back in shame 
with a life of regret because they never dialed back to the message on the answering machine. They were never available to the Spirit. But those who say yes, and I've discovered this time in and time out in my own life, those who say yes to the Spirit, the phone rings, the answer, the machine has got the answer, you listen to it, and you immediately dial back. And you say, here I am. Those who say yes discover one thing about the Christian life. To live is Christ. Pastor, that's all I have. My exhortation to you is, today, if you hear his voice, please, please say yes. Be available to God. And you will discover the riches of Jesus Christ. And there is no end to the grace which he has lavished, lavished upon you. Let's pray. Father, it is amazing grace. It is amazing love. Father, we don't even, words don't express how we don't deserve anything, but you are the God of all grace. You are the God who is described by love. You, in your holiness and in your righteousness, have met every demand that you require in the person of your son, Jesus Christ. You have given us his death so that we could be free of death. You have given us his life so that we could have life and have it more abundantly. Father, I ask that when you speak to the hearts of these people in this room, whether it be right now or this afternoon, a week from now, or whenever it be, that these folks would set aside their concerns, their doubts, and they would get in line with the Spirit, and they would say, yes, here I am. Send me. Father, please, you've loved us this far. Let your grace strengthen the hearts of these men and women for your glory and for our eternal well-being. And may everyone in this room discover in their own way that to live is Jesus Christ. Amen. Dismiss them. Go away now. <laughs> no. Fellowship, love. <laughs>